0: Thanks, Lord, uh, for the Word that you give us. Thank you that you've spoken us to us through your Word. Um, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would do a work in our hearts this morning. Um, I pray that you would use your Word um, to encourage us, to challenge us on what it looks like to live by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. September twenty second, 1862, then-President Abraham Lincoln made a proclamation, maybe one that you would recognize. He said this. On the first day of January in 1863, all person held as slaves within any state shall be then, thenceforth, and forever free. Not too long after that, those words made their way to a plantation in southwestern Virginia. and A little nine-year-old boy heard those words words. That little boy was Booker T. Washington. Perhaps you've read about or know about Booker T. Washington. He wrote an autobiography called Up From Slavery. And in that first chapter of Up From Slavery, he he described hearing this Union soldier give the Emancipation Proclamation to his family and those on the plantation. And he recalls his mother swelling up in tears and saying and explaining what this meant for him and his brothers and sisters. And she said, I have longed for the day and prayed for the day that you would be free. But if you know history, you know it was a number of years before many slaves were actually set free because the confederacy had not yet given up And there was more fighting, and then Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, and there was all kinds of political battle, even in the North, for the ratification of the 13th Amendment. But a few years later, on December 18th, 1865, it happened. News swept across the Appalachians, down to Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana, even to the cotton fields of Texas. The slaves are now free. But the practicality of freedom was another matter altogether. It was another matter altogether because many of these slaves had been slaves all their lives. And for some of them, that was 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, 10 years. And it was the only life that they knew And so news of the Emancipation Proclamation and the setting free of the 13th Amendment was celebrated, but then there was the dawning reality. What does it look like for me and my family to leave this plantation, to find our own home, to find a job? I've been a slave all my life. It's a different kind of thing. And many former slaves... In the middle of this, with the lingering questions, many former slaves returned to the fields of a life of servitude as sharecroppers, because that's what they knew. You see, turning someone's legal status into an actual experience would require internal transformation. And to you, maybe that sounds to you as foolish. And it sounds foolish to you because you've lived all your life as a free person. But there's a reality that coming out of slavery represents. And yet as Christians, I would argue this. As a Christian, if you know Jesus here this morning, friend, you've been set free. That's what the Bible's been saying in Romans. You've been set free from the bondage of your sin. And yet almost every day, what do we choose to do? Almost every day we choose to return. We choose to return to the bondage of sin in our lives, even though we're free. We click on an image on a screen for pleasure. We down another glass to numb the stress. We swipe the card of comfort or click on the Amazon button. Purchase now for the fifth time today. That's crack cocaine, man. We speak harshly. We add another, we clock another hour at work because we're chasing the status of position. And we ask, Lord, how do I change? How do I get out of this bondage? I've been asking you, God, to change me. I don't sense you, I don't sense your power at work. You see, here's the thing real freedom is a gradual, even in the Christian life, is a gradual, praise God, transformation of a newly freed, slave into a freeing person. You know what that process is called in the Bible? It's a big word that we use as Christians, sanctification, that we've been set free from our sin and bondage, and yet it takes a lifetime, a gradual transformation, because sin's presence is still there, And it's often easier just to succumb and come back to living in our sin than to live the way God wants us to live. So what's the answer? Click or turn with me to Romans chapter 6. There's a glorious answer in Romans chapter 6. It's a starting point, really. Romans 6, 1 through 14. Words will be on the screen. Page 942, 943 in your Bible on your chair there. I keep wanting to say pew. No pews here. Romans 6. And what you're going to see in Romans 6 is you need to know some things. You really need to believe what we know. We need to know that our identity, our very identity has changed. That salvation is not just fire insurance for eternity. And as you turn there to Romans 6, you can remember where Romans 1 through 5 is really about salvation, right? It's we were dead to rights, But Christ died for our sins, and He was raised to life. And last week we learned that grace continues to reign. We're in the kingdom of grace as believers in Jesus. And even when we sin, grace counts all the more. But in that, there's a natural question that comes out of Romans 5, the end of Romans 5. If sin, as we increase in sin, if sin increases and God's grace increases more, you know what the heart question is to go back to live into slavery? Well, let's just continue to sin, because we'll just see more of God's grace. That's the question we answer. Paul answers in Romans chapter 6, and he's going to answer the question with really, and give us three realities for our lives as believers in Jesus. So there's a shift here, And you need to know there's a shift when you come to a passage. You need to know if you're talking about salvation or living out the Christian life, which we call sanctification, growing in holiness, growing in grace. So let me give you Romans 5. We'll start in Romans 5 verse 20 and we'll work to verse 4 in chapter 6. And I want you to see this question and I want you to see how Paul answers it and we'll continue to progress as we go. So Romans 6, here we go. Romans 6 verses excuse me, verse 5, we'll get a little context, 520, pick it up there. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see where the question's going. Chapter 6, our text for this morning. What shall we say then? This is a rhetorical question from Paul. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question he's answering. By no means. No way. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So how does Paul answer the question? He answers the question posed in verse 1. Are we to continue to sin that grace might abound? No. You know what's behind the question? (laughs) It's often what's behind our questions. I don't think what's behind the question is some theological math equation that they're really intellectually trying to work out. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's going on, it's, ooh, opportunity. Heart opportunity to sin, and yet grace still remains. Do you catch that? He answers the question, no, and if you look in the Greek, the Greek is so emphatic, it's like, how could you ever even ask that question? How could you ever even ask that question? Christ has died for you. Your answer and here's the answer. Here's the why. You're dead to sin. Don't you realize that you're dead to that way of living, you're dead to that kingdom, you're dead to that domain. And Christ has made you alive with him. You're dead to sin. The Bible says this over and over in different ways. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, you might write that down. Says it this way: you've been transferred. You've got to transfer. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Isn't that beautiful? You're in the kingdom of the beloved Son. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You know Galatians 2, 20. You've been crucified with Christ. You're dead. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but he lives through you. have been crucified with him. And he lives through you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, new creation. You're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Listen, come, that doesn't mean you're perfect, right? It doesn't mean you don't sin. That's not what he's saying. But this is the way the Bible explains this. You're dead. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. So we ought to be living differently. We ought not be asking the question that we often ask. And you know the question. Well, God will just forgive me. You know, before you sin against God in that moment, maybe it's a private moment and you know grace and you know the Bible and you go, God will just forgive me. I know that His grace will forgive me. And the truth is, is that His grace will forgive you, but what's the heart posture in that thought? The heart posture is the same issue that we have here. Here's the point. Your first reality today in this passage about what it looks like to live under grace because we get this wrong all the time and living out grace and what it means and what it doesn't mean the first one is this living under grace is not a God-granted license to live like hell God has not sanctioned some license some permission that you just keep heaping up grace and keep sinning that's not his heart for you It's not what he desires because that's no longer who you are. That's no longer your identity. That's the first step of really understanding and living out the Christian life is that your identity has changed. And he uses this idea here, do you see it in verse 3 and 4, of baptism. I don't think technically he's referring to water baptism, like the physical act of dunking someone and raising someone. That we were talking about earlier. I don't think that's primary. That's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about what happened when you came to know Jesus. That you were, if you're Baptist, born again. The, that you're born again. Not physically, but spiritually born. There's new life. That's called regeneration. There's another big word for you. Regeneration. You've been made new. And the way it happened is look at verse 3 and 4. You were baptized into his death. That means the old is gone. You were buried. That's what we do in baptism, a physical baptism, a water baptism. It's symbolic of it. We were baptized into his death. And in order just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You know, I love Sundays in which we do baptisms. As much as this is, a, is about the spiritual reality of baptism that the Spirit gives us, I love Sunday baptism. I weep every time. Because in baptism, what you see is a person coming forward and saying, I'm a Christian. I'm on the team. I no longer want to live like I used to live. I want to live for Christ. And I want everyone to know that I want to live for Christ. And we celebrate that because what you're saying is, I'm a new person. I've been changed. I still sin, but I'm a Christian and I want to follow Jesus. I don't want to continue to sin. That's identity. When I think about identity change, I often think, sorry, about sports, when people go from one team to the other. If you go look up like the top ten worst trades ever, one of, the, one of them that will come up would be in baseball. Back in the day, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth played for the Boston Red Sox, won three championships with the Boston Red Sox. And he got traded to the New York Yankees down the road. And they didn't win a championship forever after that. The Curse of the Mambino. Ever heard of it? Worst baseball trade ever. Babe Ruth goes on to win more championships with the Yankees. Terrible trade. There's a transfer. Now let me ask you, this is silly, but let me ask you the question. When those two teams are playing one another... And Babe Ruth is now a Yankee and he puts on his pinstripes. Do you think he shows up to the game when they play one another and go over to the other dugout and put a Boston Red Sox jersey on and bats for the Boston Red Sox and cheers on his team, his former team, and pitches as well because he did both? That's crazy. He's on a new team. He's on a better team. Sorry, if there's any Red Sox fans. I don't like the Red Sox right now. We just lost. But that's crazy. But it's kind of crazy like what we do sometimes, that we're new people. We're on a different team, and yet we go back. You know the question that the hormonal teenage boy asks, how far is too far? I got that question all the time as a youth pastor. You thought it if you didn't ask it. How far is too far with a girl or vice versa? Listen, that question is not just for hormonal teenage boys. That question is in the back of our heads every day. We ask that about how far is too far about our taxes. We ask it about should I take another drink? How far is too far? We ask it about buying another item from Amazon. We ask it about how we treat our spouse and what the boundaries are to being upset and angry. We ask it about how we relate to someone of the different sex that's a coworker. How far is too far? That's a question that we, that's crazy as believers in Christ, but we do it because of the presence of sin, it's the wrong question. Just like when I used to sit down with teenage boys who would ask me that question, how far is too far with a girl? And my answer would be, young man, that's the wrong question, the right question, not just for the teenager, but for all of us, the right question is what would honor Christ? What, what would honor Christ in the way that I pay my taxes, and what I drink, and what I buy, and how I treat people. That's the right question. That's walking, or trying to walk in the newness of life. And how often do our hearts effectively say, well, God will just forgive me. There's also a cultural Christianity that we live in that makes this hard, right? We wear our crosses, and we say we go to this church and do that. And we claim grace, but we live like Hades. We've even, in the evangelical world, we've even built theologies around living a life of carnality. And you think that's crazy. You know, even in an effort to protect a workspace, us from a workspace salvation, salvations, there is a theology or multiple theologies out there in the evangelical world that says, if you pray a prayer, If you've come to know Jesus, this easy believism that is around us, then it doesn't matter that you're carnal. It doesn't matter that you live like this. You're still a Christian. They're trying to protect the security of the believer, but very much leave out the idea that when I sin, I need to repent. And I need to turn from my sin and confess and walk in the newness of life that Jesus talks about. And so we thank God for his grace. But we got to understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. It's not a license. You know, you can take good things and, and make them bad things really easy, can't you? And I think what happened at the cross is that God took a risk. He took a risk and offered us by his grace because he wants union. He wants relationship with us. And he's offered us this, this grace, but we often can twist it, can't we? I know I can. I know there are moments that I ask that question, how far is too far? I know there are moments where I say, well, God will just forgive me. He's gracious, He's lavished His grace upon us. That's real stuff that happens in your mind and in my mind. Well, Pastor, you've been screaming at us about what it's not. <laughs> what is it? If it's not living in license, what is it? Verse 5 through 11 give us that answer. Look at verse 5. For, this is great, for if we have been united to him, this is union with Christ, in his death like this, we shall certainly be united to him with resurrection. And he goes on and on, and he talks about this imperative of knowing him, and knowing that you're crucified with him. And he talks about the old self. Do you see it? In verse 6, we know that our old self, that's literally translated old man. And that doesn't mean, that's not a knock on age. What it is, is, is things don't work. That you're not productive, that it doesn't work. The old self was what? Crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But we've been set free. And sin no longer has dominion over him. Listen, your second idea this morning is this. See, living under grace is not license. Here's what it is. It's a God-enabled liberty. It's liberty. It's freedom to live like heaven, specifically the man of heaven, who's been raised from the dead. This is what Paul is saying, is that the power of sin is broken. You need to know that. And not only do you need to know that, you need to consider that, i.e., you need to have confidence in the truth that even in those moments, Christian, even in those moments where you said, sin has all this power over me, you need to know in reality, in truth, that is not true. It is not true. The power of sin has been broken at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus The Bible says it this way, no temptation has seized you, O man, that is common to man. But in that temptation, God will give you a way of escape to help you in your time of need. There is always an escape because Christ has died for your sins and the power of sin is broken. Do you really believe that? That's hard to believe in those moments where you keep going back to the same sins. It's hard to believe that, but you need to establish. Paul is establishing that here. We got two more chapters of what it looks like to live out the grace that God has given us. And that's what he's trying to establish here, that you've been united to Christ. You're not united to sin anymore. This old self, this old man is gone. You've been emancipated. You've been set free. Christ has done that. That doesn't mean, again, I'm going to keep saying it. doesn't mean perfection. Because when you read this text, it kind of feels like that. Man, Paul's saying that I should never sin. That's not what he's saying. But positionally, you've been emancipated from it. You've been set free. There's two imperatives here. To know, verse 6, and to consider, verse 11. You need to know that the old man is crucified. And you need to, maybe your Bible says for the word consider... If you have a different translation than ESV, maybe it says reckon. The idea is not just think about and consider. The idea is have confidence in this truth. That's what he's saying. Ephesians 4 says it a different way. Look at it. Ephesians 4 with me. I think it's up here. 22. It's the put on and put off language of living out the Christian life. This is how we live new. He's going to say put off this, put on this. Look at it. To put off the old self, the old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and its corruption through deceitful desires. We still have those desires. You have to put it off. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Hebrews, or uh, Romans 12 is going to say that again. And to put on the new self, this new man, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Let's go back to the first example The slaves from the 1800s, they were free, right? They were free, but the process was hard and it was long to live and actualize that freedom because of their fears, because of what they've always known. See, sometimes whether it's an abusive relationship or a toxic work environment, we, what we tend to do is like the prodigal son, There's a lot of lessons to learn from the prodigal son. And here's one of them. You know, as you think about the Christian life, do you believe that your father loves you? Do you believe even if you are in the pig slop, in the worst place where you've lost everything, do you believe that he loves you and do you have confidence that he will take you back? In those moments when you are struggling in your sins, do you believe that he is a good father who will take you back? That's what the prodigal son got right. He believed that his son, he knew and he believed that his, son and his father would take him back. And what does the father do? He welcomes him with open arms. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what you're struggling with. Maybe you're discouraged, depressed, you feel disqualified. He welcomes you back wherever you're at. Even if you're in the pig slop, take the road. Take the road. Listen, there's a gospel message, the good news of the gospel for some of you here this morning. Because I'm talking about how the Christian life works, but you're saying, man, I don't even, I'm still in, I haven't been transferred yet. I don't know Jesus yet. I'm looking at this, wondering if this is true. Maybe you're not there, but there's a great message here for you as well. The Father loves you and he would call you out of where you're at and he does that by your faith, putting your faith and trust in his son, Jesus. That you go from being dead in your sins to alive. And now you have, as a believer, the ability. See, the power of sin is not broken in your life if you don't know Christ. You have no ability to change your behavior, if you will. But this is what Christ offers you because of the cross. And if you do know Christ, maybe the operative question here is, what do you need to put off? And what do you need to put on? You're no longer a slave. You're no longer a slave. The power of sin is broken. And I can't think of this passage, and maybe you're thinking about it too. All the years that I've studied this passage and thought about this passage, I can't help but think about the places that I've been where sin was just ensnaring me. And when I come to this passage, it kind of hits me like a ton of bricks that, that what I'm engaged in doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be because it's not who I am. And this is great encouragement for you, for example, if alcohol is a thing for you. And maybe it's a private thing, but it's got you. It's got its claws in you. And anytime you struggle at work, or with your family, or your kids misbehave, you go to the drink, you need to remember who you are. Or maybe you're struggling with the private sin of pornography in your life, and you, th- and you feel overwhelmed by it. You need to come back and remember who you are. That There's a place for you to come back, to repent and to turn, and the power of sin is broken. Maybe it's just stuff. These addictive behaviors, these idols in our lives, maybe it's just stuff that you can't stop in response to something in your life, buying stuff or finding security in all the wrong places or all the wrong people. Or maybe it's just control. Maybe you just need to control the other people in your house or your spouse as if you have control of the world around you rather than trusting God with the people in your home or the things that happen in your life. but This is a great passage to remember who you are, to remember your identity and where you find that identity, to know the truth, to have confidence in it. But some of you are like people like me who need, a, need things to check off their list. Like, okay, you, you've best been talking about the way I need to think, right? Know, consider. What do I need to do? I'm that person. Are you that person? What do I need to do? It kind of sounds like I'm supposed to have this sinless life and this thing whipped. What do I need to do because I'm still tempted by sin and I still struggle with it? What do I need to do? Look at verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make it obey your passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present, there's your imperative, there's your third imperative, present yourselves to God who, as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So where does sin find its place, even in believers? Where does it, where does it find its place to express itself? In our bodies, right? That's where sin manifests itself, in the way that we think In what we see, in what we hear, in what we say, in our hands, in our feet, that's where sin finds its place, to manifest itself in our bodies. And so what Paul is saying, don't present the members, that's your body, your physical body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present, present it to God. So not to sin, but to God. Here's one of the implications of this. Sin will keep fighting you. Sin will always continue to fight you. Even if you put it to death, it will continue to fight against you. There, in this, these few verses, there is a fighting kind of language. You're going to see it in Romans 7 as well. Here's your point. Living under grace is actively, not passively, there's volition here, it's actively living in defiance of sin's illegitimate claim to reign in your life. Sin will fight you. And if it's not one thing, it will be another thing. It will fight you. Do you have enough fight in you to fight back? And you do it by His grace, Romans 8, you're going to do it by His Spirit. But we've got to fight, actively fight against sin by the power of the Spirit in us. Sin is like this terrorist cell. And you might cut off one, but another one raises its head. And I can't help, and this is not a political statement, I can't help but think of Afghanistan. We've been there for 20 years, we've been trying to rid it, and we pull out, no political statement, I'm just saying, what happened? What happened was they came back in, and they took over. That's the way sin is, unless we actively fight Against it? Is there any fight in us? And speaking of grace, Titus chapter 2 says it this way Titus chapter 2, talking about grace and actively pursuing and fighting, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for people, all people, those who believe. But it also does something else. It brings more than salvation. Training us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, grace is also continuing to train. We're saved by grace, but it means more than that. It means that we continue to fight sin. And so operative question might be, what or who are you presenting yourself to? What are you presenting your what are you letting your mind hear or think? What's coming out of your mouth? What are you looking at with your eyes? What are you hearing? What are you presenting your members to your hands and your feet? Where are you going? Be careful, little. Eyes, what you see, Be careful little ears, what you hear. So what we're getting at in verses 12 through 14. Is there any dogfight in you to fight your sin? It happens by his grace and through the power of his spirit. So we've kind of said this. We've said that we, to, to fight sin, we need to know the truth. We need to consider or have confidence in it. We need to present our bodies. That's your che- That's your checklist. Because the biblical recipe of fighting our sin is in those three phrases and those three ideas. We need to know, we need to consider, we need to present. You know, sometimes we look at salvation as kind of the finish line. The finish line and Jordan and Wheeler and these guys who run marathons, they can give you a better explanation. But what I see when people f- finish a marathon and the finish line is they're doing this right here. Or they're just laying down like, like this. Or they just go eat a bunch. drink beer or whatever, and they're done, done for a few days. I know there's probably stretching and other things involved. They could tell you better. But sometimes we treat our salvation when we came to know Jesus like the finish line rather than like the starting line. And I want you to think about this in terms of the difference between your wedding day, if you're married, and the rest of your marriage. I'm going to show you a picture. It's 19 and a half years old, maybe. Look at that. We look young. I bear, I'm 27. I'm barely shaving. And she still looks that way. 19, July 20th. I'm going to get this right. 2002. That's dangerous when you do that deal. That's 19 and a half years ago. Do you know how much planning went into that day? I didn't do much of it. I had to propose and get a ring. I had to think about that wedding day for... Eight months, nine months, had to plan. Where's Ian and Morgan? Y'all doing this deal, man? Planning it, guest list, that's fun. Photographer, place, location, date, mail out the thing. And we got a month, a month before our wedding day, we're going to have this outdoor wedding on the Guadalupe River in Seguin, where my wife grew up and rehearsal was going to be there and the wedding was going to be there. The dudes were going to stay out there the night before the wedding. The day of the wedding, we were going to have the wedding there, the reception, all of it there. And a month before, the Guadalupe River decided to flood. And it washed the thing away. So we had like three weeks. We went a lot of planning into this deal. We moved it to my wife's church, which was built in the 80s, and all Baptist churches were like gladiator arenas in the 80s, and so that's why we were going outside. But we, we got married. And it was glorious, and we celebrated, and we often look back at our wedding album and wedding pictures, and this is a shameless plug here, and we love it, and we celebrate it, and we make much about it. It's kind of like the day that you came to know Christ in that way, that you celebrate it and you look back on it. But what if the rest of 19 and a half years in our marriage was just us looking back at our wedding book? We're just looking back and celebrating what happened. And there's no more pictures. There's no more growth. It's just a constant look back at that day. I got another picture up here. I could give you a lot more, but I'm not going to do that to you. You can go on social media and find it if you really want to see it. That's 19 and a half years later. I'm shaving. My wife still looks great. We've added to the mix. And listen, there are a lot of pictures between... The first picture and that picture, a lot of pictures that we took of glorious times, a lot of pictures we didn't take. I kind of want to do that sometimes on social media, just put this picture of real life. But you know what? There's been growth. We don't just look, just look back at that first day. There's thousands and thousands of pictures and memories and growth. In ways in which, whether we wanted it or not, God grew to, has grown two selfish, sinful people who are living in the, under the same roof with three children. Can I tell you, that's very much like sanctification. Marriage is a lot of sanctification. But let me ask you something. As you think about the life that you're living, the Christian life that you're trying to live Listen, are you just looking back at what happened 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago, the day you came to know Jesus? Are you missing out on all that God wants to do in your life? How he wants to grow you and change you and mature you. And sometimes that's through hardship and suffering. We could stand up and talk about that. And that's painful, but God is growing us. And we certainly draw on that first day, that day we got married. But God's continuing to grow us. And listen if you're just looking back, you're missing out. You've got to continue to live and look forward to what God is doing in your life. Because marriage is joyous, and marriage is joy filled, and it's wonderful. And it's growing us in holiness. And it's hard. Don't forget the wedding. Listen, don't forget the wedding, but don't miss out on the marriage. And in a similar way, Christ died not only to save you, but he died to sanctify you, to set you apart. That's your takeaway today. Don't miss out. Christ didn't just die to save you. He didn't purchase you just to save you and get you out of that. He purchased you, to set you apart. that You might grow in him, that you might share with others, that you might be a light to this dark world. Know that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Consider, have confidence in the new man or woman that he's made you. Know that, believe that, and then present yourself to Him as instruments of His. Let me pray. Father, tall order, in this text today, we know we can't pull off living out the Christian life on our own. We can't present ourselves to you on our own. We need your grace. We need your grace today, tomorrow, next month. So would you grant that to us through the power of your spirit to live for you today? We pray that we would take your words and come back to them and remember who we are. And Lord, I pray maybe for people in here that are just deep, that would be honest enough with you to cry out to you to say, I am deep in sin. I know that I've been emancipated. I know I've been freed, but I need a new work of your grace to help me get from where I'm at to on a path of walking with you. Would you help me, Lord? So, Lord, also, I would pray that you would use what you often use in the body of Christ Because sometimes we need people to talk to, people to encourage us, people to challenge us, people to hold each other accountable, that we're not maverick Christians. So, Lord, I pray in that place that people would reach out to someone they trust and someone they know to say, I'm struggling and I need help. I know that I'm new. I have confidence that I'm new. I'm struggling to present instruments of my body, whether it's my mouth or my eyes or my mind, or my hands or my feet, help me. Lord, we know that there's not a temptation that we face that you can't meet us in, that others can't meet us in, but we believe in the power of the gospel, and we believe today that your spirit is at work, and can work to begin to change us. So do that work, even if it's slow, even if it's gradual transformation, begin to do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name.